This podcast is from the RAND Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about us and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries. I'm Anita Chandra, the director of RAND Justice, Infrastructure, and Environment, and a senior policy researcher at RAND. It's my pleasure to introduce our speaker for this program. Nithi Kalra is an information scientist at RAND and the director of the RAND Center for Decision-Making Under Uncertainty. Her research addresses energy, environment, and science and technology policy. She recently co-led a study providing policy guidance on autonomous vehicle technologies and presented the findings to California lawmakers in Sacramento. Nithi received her Ph.D. in robotics from Carnegie Mellon University's Robotics Institute. The world's first robotics Ph.D. program started in 1988. Let's hear more from her now. Thank you so much, Anita. I'm not sure I'm quite that much of a daredevil. But, uh, but to the topic at hand, autonomous vehicles, what are the policy implications? This idea of autonomous vehicles or automated highways are one that has captured the American imagination for over 75 years. The General Motors Futurama exhibit took place at the 1939 World's Fair, and it promised that highways and automated highways would revolutionize American surface transportation. And in the years since, in the decades since, a number of visions have been put forth of what this looks like. And I want to share a couple of these with you. Now, I want to share a couple of clips. The first one is from 1958. It's a program called Magic Highway USA, which was made by Disney. And it depicts what the future of highway transportation would be viewed from the lens of 1950s culture and norms. As father chooses the route in advance on a push-button selector, electronics take over complete control. Progress can be accurately checked on a synchronized scanning map. With no driving responsibility, the family relaxes together. En route, business conferences are conducted by television. I love this congestion-free driving, cars that hover along on these beautiful highways in the middle of what looks like national national forest. So this is this is a real utopia that, that this program predicts. Here's a competing vision. This some of you might recognize this. This is a 2011 ad for a more traditional vehicle. Hands-free driving. Cars that park themselves. An unmanned car driven by a search engine company. We've seen that movie. It ends with robots harvesting our bodies for energy. (laughs) How how many people have seen that ad before? Raise your hand. Okay, a few people. So, of course, this is the exact opposite. It warns us of this dystopic nightmare in which autonomous vehicles and their robot friends take over the world. Quick question, another poll. How many people identify more with the first video of a utopia when they think of autonomous vehicles? Raise your hand. And how many people are waiting for robots to harvest our brains for energy? Okay, a few people. Well, today I really want to share with you what I think are some of the realities of this technology and what the prospects are. So perhaps the most well-known of the autonomous vehicle efforts is the Google program. They've logged over half a million miles of crash-free driving. Now, of course, there's a human operator sitting behind the driver's seat waiting to leap in at a moment's notice if necessary. 
but this is pretty impressive. And the only crash that's occurred happened when, in fact, the human was controlling the vehicle. <laughs> so that we're doing pretty well. This is very promising. But there's a lot of technical challenges that have to be resolved in order for us to see this technology come to life. So first is autonomous vehicles will have a lot of sensors, radar, laser, cameras, that are much more sophisticated than our eyes and ears. But the challenge lies in turning this, these reams of sensor data into information about the world, into knowledge about what's happening in the environment. And here's a simple example. This is totally obvious to everyone in this room, but it might throw autonomous vehicle vision systems for a loop. Another challenge is that autonomous vehicles don't have a wealth of personal experience on which to draw when they're driving. When we're driving and we see a ball roll into the road, we stop. We know that there's probably a child not far behind. It's not clear what autonomous vehicles will do in this situation, but the decision is an important one. As another example, how do we balance, safely balance, driving between a human and a vehicle? Now, the initial concepts that are likely to be put forth for autonomous vehicles will have the vehicle being autonomous sometimes. In inclement weather, detours, crashes, unexpected conditions, the human is likely to be expected to jump in and take over driving. But the promise of these vehicles is that we don't have to pay attention. So how is it that we can allow a human to relax, close their eyes, text, and not pay attention one second, and then leap in and make good decisions when the vehicle needs us to? This is a problem that has, is not limited to autonomous vehicles. It challenges autopilot systems and aircraft as well. And it's something we haven't been able to resolve effectively. Despite these and other technical challenges, nearly every automaker is promising to develop these technologies. Tesla recently came out with their version of autonomous vehicles. Nissan has promised a fully autonomous vehicle by 2020. So very soon, they're around the corner. So let's talk about some of the benefits that these technologies promise us. The one that often comes to mind immediately is that of safety. Autonomous vehicles have the potential to save massive number of lives. Every year, nearly 30,000 Americans lose their lives in crashes, and another 2.5 million are injured. And the vast majority of these crashes are the result of human error, the mistakes that we make. Autonomous vehicles are never drunk, they're never tired, they're never distracted, they're not going to be texting their friends while eating a burger in the car. <laughs> so the potential to save lives is tremendous. Now, if we add to this the fact that we can have communication between vehicles or communication between vehicles and the infrastructure, well, then the savings in human lives and the cost of lives becomes even greater. Other benefits relate to improving mobility. There are many people that are too young or disabled and unable to drive. There's approximately 70 to 75 million baby boomers who are facing years of declining mobility. And yet mobility is essential to our happiness to get to jobs, to get to sources of health care, to live our daily lives. Autonomous vehicles offer the possibility of increasing mobility for these populations for many years into the future. And you might recognize this clip. It's a still frame from a Google video in which a blind man was driven by an autonomous vehicle. And at the end of the video, he remarks, this is some of the best driving I've ever done. <laughs> Other benefits are those to the cost of congestion and maybe even the incidence of congestion. One of the biggest reasons congestion is a problem is because hundreds of thousands of people every morning are sitting in their cars doing nothing. They're waiting for traffic to move along. 
By letting us do something else, autonomous vehicles can significantly reduce the cost of congestion. They may also reduce the incidence of traffic congestion because, for example, vehicles can move much more efficiently on our highways, increasing their throughput. But this is a complex story, and I'll come back to it. There's also an impact on fuel consumption and environmental benefits. So over the last 20 years, our vehicles have gotten heavier and heavier, in part because we have increasingly rigorous crash test standards. But if there's no crashes, we don't need heavy vehicles. We can have very light vehicles. And this does a few things. One is that with light vehicles, our fuel economy increases substantially and reduces our energy dependence. It also makes vehicles like fully plug-in vehicles competitive with gas-powered vehicles in terms of distance. So new types of vehicles could become possible. But let me take this a step further. So far, I've been talking about vehicles in which there's a human behind the wheel. But imagine vehicles in which there's nobody in the car. The car's empty and it's driving itself. This creates new possibilities. Fuel cell vehicles run on hydrogen, and they have no tailpipe emissions. They have no CO2 emissions. They would be a tremendous environmental advantage for our transportation systems. But the problem is that they require a lot of new infrastructure. I mean, there have to be hydrogen refueling stations as common as we find gas stations. And that's a huge hurdle to clear to make these technologies a reality. But if our vehicles can drive to refueling stations on their own in the middle of the night, then we don't need infrastructure, right? We don't need as much infrastructure for refueling as we might. And that could make technologies like this possible where today they're not. The implications for land use are similarly profound. So right now, by some estimates, nearly 30% of our central business districts in major cities are used for parking. And 95% of a vehicle's life is spent standing still, parked somewhere. I think anyone would say that's a huge waste of our resources. Now, imagine if autonomous vehicles can drive you to your destination in you know, the center of, of downtown LA and then drive to some satellite area to park. Better yet, imagine we have car sharing programs where your autonomous vehicle drives to your house, picks you up, takes you where you need to go, and then goes and helps someone else and is never sitting idle. Our need for parking can be completely transformed. Imagine opening up 30% of our central business districts for things like parks, new housing, new businesses, really revitalizing our urban centers. So the possibilities here are tremendous. This all sounds terrific, but let me show you the other side of the coin, which is that there are some disadvantages that this technology brings. As I mentioned, congestion is a complicated issue. There's a lot of literature that says that as the cost of driving decreases, the demand for driving increases. So imagine if we don't have to drive, we might be willing to spend four, six, eight, ten hours a day in our vehicles. Our vehicles might not look like vehicles anymore, but studio apartments on wheels, right? The idea of living in your car takes on a whole new meaning. <laughs> and so the implications to congestion Maybe that congestion increases, but the cost of congestion decreases. So it's not clear where this would balance out. Here's another complicated factor. Transit, one of the big benefits of transit is that you don't have to drive. If autonomous vehicles offer the same benefits, well, this could sap transit of key ridership. There's, there's a silver lining here, though, which is that autonomous vehicles could make transit more efficient, 
For example, by solving our last mile problem, by taking people to transit hubs where otherwise they might not be able to get there. So it's a complicated relationship. There's also the potential for economic disruption. Many people, a huge number of Americans, make their living driving. Cab drivers, truck drivers, couriers, bus drivers. These jobs are threatened by autonomous vehicles, just as the introduction of automobiles in the first place threatened jobs of their time. And this is essentially unavoidable with these technologies. There's also a huge economy around crashes. It would be a tremendous advantage. (laughs) I'm serious, right? It would be a tremendous advantage if we didn't have crashes. But the legal professions, healthcare, insurance, all depend on us being bad drivers. So the existing crash economy would be affected with autonomous vehicles. Let me give you one more example. Municipalities increasingly rely on parking to fund a lot of their big projects. But if land use were to be transformed, they would have to find other sources of revenue. And they're likely to be out there, right, with the businesses and the homes that we could replace with parking lots. But this is a change to which they'd have to adapt. So where does this leave us? Well, I think the news is good. All in all, we believe that the overall societal benefits of autonomous vehicle technologies exceed the cost. By one estimate, crashes cost us $230 billion annually, in this country alone. Congestion costs us $120 billion annually. No category of disadvantages that we can anticipate comes close to offsetting these costs. So that's the good news. How excited can we get? Unfortunately, lessons from the past suggest that we should be cautiously optimistic. And airbags provide us with an interesting example. Airbags were first patented in 1953, much earlier than many people suspect, and were first introduced in luxury models in the 1970s. At the time, seatbelt use was very low, and people viewed airbags as substitutes for seatbelts rather than supplements. And NHTSA, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, sought to require airbags, making seatbelts unnecessary. Now, automakers resisted this for a number of reasons. First, they were concerned about the reliability with which airbags would deploy in the event of a crash. But on top of this, they were concerned about the liability. So far, the safety was the responsibility of the passengers. They had to buckle up. But suddenly, this could transform the liability from being on the passengers of the vehicle to the automakers. And perhaps naturally, they resisted this. It wasn't until 1991, 40 years after the technology was first patented, that regulations finally passed and airbags were required in model years 1999 and later. So what happened to allow this policy to take place? A few things. First is that the technology got better. It could deploy with greater reliability. But secondly, and perhaps more importantly, seatbelt use was widespread, and safety was a major concern. People saw airbags as a supplement to, rather than a substitute for uh, for airbags as a supplement. So that changed the liability regime that manufacturers anticipated. As a result, we finally saw airbags offering, uh, appearing in our vehicles. And today, of course, they're standard. But the story is still more complicated. Because in the 1970s, the anticipated benefits were that airbags would save 9,000 lives annually. But we saw this number of lives saved in the 14 years between 1987 and 2001. So the anticipated benefits at the time were overblown. But when the regulations finally passed, as I say, it was a confluence of technical, social, and political factors 
which we can anticipate for autonomous vehicles as well. And one last thing, airbags certainly saved lives, but they also caused new kinds of injuries. Airbags were designed to protect the unbelted male passenger, and the force required to do this was actually harmful for smaller passengers, women and children. And so later regulations had to revise how we use airbags so that they could be smarter and deploy responsibly to depending on who the occupant of the vehicle was. So this suggests a lot of things that we may see with autonomous vehicles as well. First is that the, the benefits I describe will accrue to the public, and they will do so if we have widespread adoption. We're not going to see changes in land use if 3% of our vehicles are autonomous. So we need widespread use in order to see these benefits. But the problem is that the buyer, the purchaser of these vehicles, only sees some of the benefits. They only see the safety, mobility, and cost of congestion benefits. And this mismatch between the beneficiaries and the degree of the benefits and the cost bearers is a problem. As with airbags, automakers' liability is likely to increase. As vehicles become increasingly responsible for the driving task, automakers will be increasingly liable when crashes occur. And automakers may resist allowing people to do other things or to not be responsible, which reduces some of the benefits of the technology anyway. And while we might make an argument about the costs and the benefits, our existing law struggles to include long-term benefits and cost-benefit analyses in how it thinks about product liability. There's a number of other factors that may affect the safe and timely adoption. One is that drivers may be overconfident in the technology, and they may misuse the technology. Automakers may not incorporate it, believing that it's not going to sell or that it's not going to sell widely enough to be worth it. Now, as I mentioned, the early stages may, are likely to require trained, alert drivers. But that's hard to do when the benefit is that you don't have to be alert. Right? And finally, as with many fancy technologies, they start in, as luxury items. But if the costs of the technology don't decrease, they may remain luxury items. And we may never see the widespread adoption that's necessary to see the full benefits that the technology promises. So these, all of these factors can result in a market failure, as we arguably saw with airbags. The societal benefits may exceed the cost, but no one may buy or sell the vehicles. And if adoption is slow, thousands may die unnecessarily. So what can our policymakers do about it? The first thing that our research suggests is that they should collaborate, but not overregulate. Right now, a lot of testing is taking place on these technologies on our public roads, and there have, the testing has been virtually smooth and incident-free. So it's not clear that we need, at this time, a lot of technical regulation. In particular, though, if states start imposing regulations on the technology, we can have this crazy state-by-state -state patchwork quilt of regulations, and meeting these regulations can be extremely difficult for automakers and increase the cost of the technology. Another concern is that no single concept of the technology has come to dominate our thinking. There are some concepts in which the vehicle will drive fast on highways. Others suggest slow driving in cities. Others suggest driving in a lane but not changing lanes. No one concept has come to dominate. And it would be in a tremendous burden on our public agencies if they were to try to regulate all of these, tech, all of these concepts, particularly since the field is evolving so rapidly, keeping up with the advancements would be extremely difficult. The consequence of this is also that premature regulation can stifle innovation. We agree with NHTSA, 
which said that the regulation of the technical performance of automated vehicles is premature at this time. And premature regulation can put the brakes on the evolution towards increasingly better vehicle safety technologies. But there are things policymakers might want to consider. They may look for ways to equalize the individual consumer benefits and costs with the societal benefits and costs. This is the reason we have subsidies, for example, for plug-in vehicles. But that may happen eventually. There's a lot of research that's still needed to understand what are the costs, what are the benefits, and to whom will they accrue, and what's a smart way of trying to equalize this imbalance. Now, I got a great question from a reporter who asked, how should policymakers anticipate and respond to potential changes? Should cities be going out and buying land on the outskirts for future autonomous vehicle parking spots? Should we have dedicated highway lanes for autonomous vehicles? And our answer is no. There's a lot of uncertainty about how this technology will emerge and what its impact would be. It's too early to make decisions that hinge on any particular outcome. Instead, policymakers should be asking themselves, what long-term decisions are we making today that would be derailed if autonomous vehicles were to be mainstream part of our transportation system? What are the brittle decisions we're making? And they should find opportunities to try to evolve along with the technology and develop a plan to stay abreast of these changes. Now, I just want to point out that this idea of decision-making under uncertainty and long-term planning is an area in which RAND has a lot of expertise. A lot of our work is in this area, particularly with technology foresight. And it's under this umbrella that this work takes place. So with that, uh, I want to conclude. The entire report is available on RAND's website. It's also available by print. And it addresses these and other issues in a lot more detail. With that, I'd love to open it up to questions. So uh, good evening. Uh, we uh, welcome your questions. And what we ask is that people raise their hands. And uh, my colleague, Steve, and I will identify you. And we'll try to get around to everyone that we can. So we've got, looks like we've got a couple here in the front row we're going to start with. What makes you think this will work without inevitable catastrophic failure? <laughs> uh, maybe it's the word inevitable that you put in there. Um, you know, we have seen a lot of transformations. I mean, you know, the invention of the airplane, transcontinental railroads, the invention of the automobile itself, the horseless carriage, was see seen by those of the time as this, you know, uh, this transformation that would doom us to some kind of future. So I certainly don't think catastrophic failure is uh, inevitable. I'm not sure that it's likely. I think the fact that we have autopilots on aircrafts, we, have, we are increasingly seeing automated technologies. I'm optimistic on that front. I, I would say our history of innovation would support the fact that we can do really interesting and exciting things, but that there are cautionary tales. Um, so I think if we are sensible and if we're careful, I think this could be a benefit. We've got another question here in the front. Yes, you mentioned the need initially for alert and drivers that are paying attention, and yet today we have lots of vehicles on autopilot. We have lots of drivers on non-autopilot who are busy texting mm -hmm. and talking on the phone and are not alert to begin with. That's right. So where does, it, where, where does the control come in? Well, the difference will be right now, I mean, it's, you know, it's illegal to be texting or on your phone, right? But. Right? So... The idea, though, is that 
if we allow the vehicle, so right now, presumably, we are still looking out our windshield, right? We're not sleeping, hopefully, right? You can't sleep for very long in a moving vehicle. So it's a question of, it's partly a question of degree, and it's partly a question of responsibility. Who is ultimately responsible for the operations of the vehicle? And if that issue changes from being the driver, whatever the driver might be doing, if the driver is no longer needs to be responsible, they won't be responsible. And that changes how people view themselves and what their role is in driving. We've got a question on this side. Um, sort of with the whole idea of experimentation, uh, do you think there's a place where you maybe even would want to hold off on a big intensive federal policy, but indeed let different states apply different uh, strategies of how to build it into, uh, you know, function in society. And, and that's what's happening right now. NHTSA has declined to engage in rulemaking right now and allow, is allowing states to try their hand at different regulations. So there is a good reason to have that. It's a question of what is being regulated. If you're regulating who can, what kind of vehicle can get on the road and what kind of requirements need to be, you know, what kind of uh, legal requirements and uh, licensing requirements, I think that's something that's very much in state's purview. But if we start regulating the technical performance, regulating, requiring this kind of sensor, that kind of sensor, this many miles of driving, that's where it gets really complicated. So it depends on what states choose to regulate. We've got a question here on your right. Okay. Hi, I was wondering to what extent your study or your expertise in, uh, has addressed or considered security issues like a car getting hacked, for mm -hmm. example. That's a great question, and it's a huge concern. Our study does look into it, and it's an open question. How do you ensure information integrity and software integrity? And particularly when, you know, we get we update our software all the time, right? Our computer says, would you like to update? And we say, yes. Well, how do we do that when we've got autonomous vehicles on the road and there's an issue of whether there's bugs in the software, whether they get hacked, whether the, you know, your update is not verified. There's a whole field of information security that could be applied, but these are open questions that actually our state agencies are struggling with, is what do they need to require from manufacturers in order to have information security apply well to these technologies? It's an open question, and I don't have an answer. We've got a question here on the left. Obviously, when you talk about adoption of a new technology, consumer behavior is an important factor, and we haven't really talked about how do you factor in the, that many people like driving, especially uh, young men or older men in their second childhood like me? <laughs> and you're, uh, if you look at the number of car magazines sold and websites about cars and the number of times people are speaking about them and going to auto shows, mm -hmm. how, how can you predict uh, <coughs> adoption of this uh, will be affected? And does it work if some people don't want to do it and others do? Mm -hmm. that's, a, that's a great question. So let me reassure you that no one is going to strong arm your car away from you. You get to keep it. Um, but, you know, the, there's a difference, I think, in generation. A lot of research shows that younger people views car, view cars differently. Whereas once upon a time, the vehicle represented freedom and mobility, and heck, it represented sexiness, right? Today, you're your iPad, your computer, your phone, your technology, these things represent, represent those things. No one is, you know, uh, young people are increasingly looking to their technology the way that 
previous generations look to their car. So I think there's a generational shift that we can expect. And there's a whole host of young people who don't want to drive, who prefer to take transit, because then that allows them to be texting and doing their work. So I think that there's going to be this kind of technology may appeal to different segments differently. But in terms of having mixed vehicles on the road, I think that's how it's going to have to happen. And the manufacturers developing this technology are developing it in, with the eye that the tech vehicles around them are not going to be automated for a very, very long time. And they're going to have to respond to distracted drivers and sleepy drivers and weird things running across the road. So I think that that's the reality, is that we're going to have mixed vehicles on the road. We've got a question up here in the front. You mentioned, but very quickly went past the item of infrastructure, infrastructure <laughs> development and installation. What kind of items are you talking about, and what kind of cost uh, is, is out there? Right. So some of the early concepts of autonomous driving involved automated highways. For example, we'd have magnets in the road that would guide our vehicles. We have heavy communication infrastructure. With our financially strapped transportation agencies, I think these, are, these kinds of infrastructure changes would be prohibitively expensive. So again, automakers are developing the technology without relying on changes to our transportation infrastructure. But there are things our transportation agencies can do that would be potentially low cost and widely beneficial. For example, right now, when we navigate through a detour area, it's, it can be really hard figuring out which way to go. It's, you know, we use our best judgment, we follow the car in front of us. It will be, <laughs> right? <laughs> it will be really hard for autonomous vehicles, but it could be easy if we have standardized ways of reporting on detours, documenting them, providing guidance through them. This would be good not just for autonomous vehicles, but for people as well. So that's one way in which transportation agencies can facilitate the technology at low cost while also having other co-benefits. I've got a question over here. Mm -hmm. I'd like to talk about uh, congestion. Mm -hmm. The fantasy was that people would uh, go to work and then their cars would go and run other errands or deal with other people. Let's say that happens at this event tonight. Everybody uses their autonomous vehicle. They come here, the vehicle goes away and does things, and later on, we're all getting ready to leave. So we've got all these cars coming here. Right. What happens? <laughs> it's a good question, and I think if I'm, you know, today I arrived at LAX, and I stood in a long line to get a cab, right? I think we can imagine it's possible to have something like that. There's... Always, well, there's a supply and demand issue for transportation that may be challenging. I mean, hailing a cab at 5 p.m. in New York City is really hard. And I'm not sure this technology is going to solve that problem because that's a problem of uneven supply and uneven demand. So I don't have a good answer for you. We may still have chaos. We've got a question right here on your right. It's easy to imagine the, the, um, the benefits being large when everybody's driving an autonomous vehicle. Um, but... Uh, if 3% are driving them, uh, you're not going to be able to make the cars as light and as efficient mm -hmm. as you want. Do you think that really it will be possible through incentives to actually move forward from, from the initial stage of having these out on the road? You know, I think incentives can play a role in basically creating, in, in, creating demand for technologies. When a consumer has a choice between vehicle A and vehicle B, the incentive may push them over the edge, marginally over the edge. 
But really, I think the technology has to stand on its own feet. Right? I don't think that we can incentivize our way to widespread use. On the other hand, you know, and this is, you know, if we think about the transformation between car and, you know, between horse and buggy to cars, you know, it takes time, but the advantages of the technology have to be clear to those who are using it. So in that sense, I think the onus is on the technology. We've got a question here in the back. Hi. Um, I just wanted to kind of bring up the issue. There's all this uh, discussion about implementation, and um, I, I feel like we've kind of brushed over the ideas of what happens when large conglomerates that have the muscle to influence policy, maybe in an opposite direction, um, what happens when they you know, are introduced into this equation and we're not even able to reach the deployment stage? I can understand like Google or Carnegie Mellon doing their micro studies and, and so on, but how does it actually get taken to market without stepping on the toes of you know, auto manufacturers who maybe aren't in the game or petroleum companies, things along those lines? Well, I don't yet see petroleum companies as being big opposers to this technology, since it may, in fact, increase our appetite for driving. Um, but in terms of you know, having the people, the manufacturers who embrace the technology and those that don't, um, you know, it's not clear to me, or I don't have reason to believe that there's going to be a concerted standoff uh, between automakers who do and automakers who don't provide the technology. There may be general resistance in terms of liability. Automakers may not release the technology or may release it in limited forms. But I don't have reason to believe we would see that kind of a standoff. If it did occur, I'm not sure what would happen, but presumably we wouldn't see the technology come to play. We've got a question in the back here. Um, hi. Um, are these technologies being uh, developed anywhere else in the world? And if so, how are those societies responding to these same policy issues? That's, that's a great question, and they are. Um, Australia, for example, has you know, a, a lot of traffic that go, a lot of truck traffic or cargo that goes through their outback. And so automating trucks, for example, has a real advantage uh, in that context. Um, Europe has different liability laws, and I'm not an expert on it, but that has allowed for technologies that we don't yet have. Um, for, well, or that are only coming out here recently. It was many years ago, um, and I'm forgetting the company, but that offered adaptive cruise control and lane keeping in Europe, but didn't offer it here, largely because of liability concerns. So it's, you know, right now we haven't seen the transformative changes to consider how society will adapt, but the existing differences in liability regimes and expectations about fault have shaped how the technology is emerging. Got a question back here. I, I was wondering whether you'd considered the possibility that the technology might be easier to introduce if there were different forms of ownership. That is to say, well, I was struck by the fact that you, you noted how much more efficiently the vehicles could be used. They could do several different jobs. What about if a group of people bought, say, a couple of vehicles, and therefore they, they can work out how those vehicles can serve the needs of a considerable number of people. So that, for example, a customer, somebody who's got their own existing self-driving, uh, ordinary car, might also invest in a second car which was shared with other people, but which was self-driving and could do a number of different tasks. So we have that in a form, right? When we uh, have membership to Zipcar, for example, right? We, in a way, we have ownership of a fleet of vehicles that we can use on demand. So I think that has a lot of promise. And Zipcar, for example, or car sharing programs like it, 
are not offering products. We're not buying the vehicle. We're buying a service, right? And that actually changes how what liability laws apply. Product liability if you're selling something, but contract law if you're providing something as a service. So that actually may change how manufacturers are able to provide the technology and how we use it in a more social setting. Nidhi, we have a question in the back here. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. You deserve the everything. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I have two things to comment. Uh, then the valet service will disappear, right? It could. <laughs> right? <laughs> and number uh, the other one, the serious one, is uh, will this technology also could be incorporated to, quote, the pedestrians? Can you elaborate on what you mean? Let's say that I'm crossing the street with my dog. Will some device from the car will uh, tell me, stop it, you know, you're going to get killed? Uh, I don't think that's on the on the radar just yet. Uh, what I will say, though, is that you know autonomous vehicles, the technology is there to try to detect pedestrians. And in fact, if we have really safe vehicles that don't get into crashes, that means we can have vehicles that are designed also to protect pedestrians or that have a softer shell because rather than protecting the passengers inside, maybe they're protecting the people on the outside. There's also the flip side, though, is that, you know, one of my concerns is if how many people have ever raced to get an elevator and stuck their arm in the elevator, confident that it would close? Now, you imagine playing this game of chicken with an autonomous vehicle. You're confident that the car barreling towards you is autonomous. You're sure it'll stop, so you step into the road, right? And I wonder if we're going to see behaviors like that. I was talking about the use or misuse of the technology if we're overconfident. Got a question right here. I'm fascinated with the idea that, you know, when uh, the automakers started uh, becoming predominant in our culture and we had trolleys and things like that, they were very influential in dismantling urban mass transit systems. And I'm curious to see how something like this can actually derail, um, you know, future plans for mass transit in larger settings. Well... It may be, you know, it's an open question, for example, if we have autonomous vehicles, what does that mean for high-speed rail, right? If we can get from San Francisco to L.A. in a couple of hours with really fast autonomous vehicles, what does that mean for rail? Um, what does it mean for buses when we have autonomous vehicles rolling around? But I don't think the tail is all that necessarily bad because, again, one of the big challenges of mass transit is getting to our points of transit. I live in San Francisco, and you know my husband works in the South Bay, but we can't take the Caltrain because it's hard to get to and from the Caltrain station at our points of departure and arrival. If you could hop into an autonomous vehicle reliably with perhaps other passengers, get to your point of transit, and have basically last-mile connectivity, I think there could be a lot of advantages. Also imagine paratransit. Paratransit is expensive for cities, Sometimes the service is not what we'd like it to be. Imagine if we can have autonomous vehicles provide the paratransit service. It could be of higher quality and faster and possibly even cheaper than we currently have. So I think the tail for transit is not necessarily a bad one. And I don't think we're at an age in which 
uh, manufacturers are going to dismantle the transit system that we currently have. So we've got a question right up here in the front. I thank you very much for a wonderful, interesting, fascinating presentation. We always enjoy the RAND presentations. I did hear a couple of uh, presentations respecting uh, self-driving cars, and one of the things that they were talking about was what I would call artificial intelligence, in that, you know, what a, 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 a car can decide if they're too close to another car, they can put the brakes on. But such things as if you're in, in, in an intersection and somebody nudges out into the intersection, that means I'm going to go first. Mm -hmm. And uh, what do you think the relative uh, availability of that kind of what I'll call artificial intelligence is, where they can duplicate what human beings uh, can do that uh, typically today mm -hmm. um, computers cannot do? Right. I mean, I think that's a great question and you know, is similar to the point I was making about the ball that rolls into the road, right? It, we, we, you know, driving is a social function. We make eye contact with the other people in the intersection. A police officer waves us through the part, you know, through the uh, intersection when things get complicated. It's truly not clear to me that autonomous vehicles can handle those kinds of situations, which is why we may have the human in the driver's seat for a very long time. It may be in the future that we have we adapt to this kind of uh, situation where in addition to having, you know, every police officer, for example, in that case, is equipped with a small device for the autonomous vehicles going by so that they can be waved through. So I think how we drive, how the infrastructure evolves, and how the technology evolves may have to happen in parallel. But you're absolutely right that driving is a social function, and it's not clear how we can have social cars. Right. We've got another one here in the front row. Mm -hmm. Hi. Um it's it's amazing how much you've learned and know about all of this. And um, just from a timing standpoint, if you were to make an educated guess as to how long certain things would happen to make milestones with this moving forward, mm -hmm. what would you say? I get that question a lot, and it always makes me nervous. Um, you know, uh, so being in the field that I do, I know educated guesses are usually wrong. So I will give you a... a or guess, but my guess would be that we can see fully autonomous vehicles, the technology ready in the next 10 years. But it may be much longer before we see them, partly because of legal issues, partly because our infrastructure may not be ready for it. It's not, it's not entirely clear. But I think, you know, having been in this field a long time, we're progressing rapidly. And now we're trying to get from 99% reliable to 99.99% reliable and those final fractions of a percent are the hardest to pin down. I've got a question here on your right. Mm -hmm. Yes, hello. I'd be interested in the people here, a little poll. How many are interested in giving up car ownership and the insurance and uh, becoming uh, um, self-driving, uh, autonomous, and perhaps alternative fuel vehicles on demand, vehicle on demand through their smartphone? Fair question. Quick show of hands. How many people? And I will keep my hand up too. Ah, so it's. Oh, let me repeat. How many people are interested in basically being driven around by an autonomous vehicle that is maybe shared and alternatively fueled? It's a lot of people, but not everyone. All right. I've got another question here. Uh, I want to ask uh, about uh, you know about the Mustard City Initiative with uh, BRT, the person. A little bit, yes. Yes. So uh, building a city 
future cities or you know as we progress and having in mind that uh, driveless uh, cars will be the center focus making sure uh, renewable using renewable energy making sure that uh, these vehicles will uh, will contribute to the bigger picture i think is a big uh, deal Don't yeah let me and I'm sorry, did, was there, did you have a question or would you like me to respond in general? Uh, yes, uh, a comment if you have, okay. uh, as Bart, not just, because these vehicles, you can just hop in them and then take you, uh, but they're working right now, so. Right. So the, the question is really, what, what does it mean to have cities that are designed fresh from scratch with the idea that autonomous vehicles will be central to the city's transportation? And you know, I think it's the idea of this is fascinating. I mean, to think about what would our what would our transportation infrastructure look like if every car were autonomous and we could start from scratch. And I think we would design our land use would be completely different. Um, but also, how we live in that city would be completely different. For example, you know, if our cars can drive themselves, then I can send my car to run an errand for me, pick up my dry cleaning, go to the grocery store. Does that mean maybe that rather than having a McDonald's drive-through, I have a Whole Foods drive-through, right? It changes the way our businesses are arranged, the way things are put together in our city. So I think really, if we have the opportunity to start from scratch, we can be transformative. But I guess I have to caution at the same time that it's very hard to imagine the changes that will come. You know, I like to think of it as today we are in 2014, we are very much the way we were in, I'd say, 1992 with the Internet. We had this idea that with the Internet that we could send messages and someone around the world could get them really fast. I mean, not that fast. It was dial-up, but pretty fast. And, um, you know, we had this idea that we could send messages and maybe pictures. And we really didn't know how it would transform our lives, and yet it has. I don't think any of us today can imagine... You know, it's hard to remember what it was like without the Internet. How do you check out a book from the library? What's the card catalog? How do I get from point A to point B? We may be at the same place with autonomous vehicles, where we have in our minds this idea that, okay, our car can drive us places and we don't have to pay attention. But it is hard to imagine 15 or 20 years from now all of the secondary and tertiary effects from that. So planning a city to take advantage of those secondary and tertiary effects is very hard. And it's, ambitious, it's an ambitious idea. And I think the key there is to be nimble and to be responsive to the changes that are likely, that could occur without knowing which ones are likely. As you can see, this is a, a great example of where RAND would like to go in terms of how do we think about technology, how do we think about innovation, and all the issues of regulation and human behavior that Nidhi raised. So thank you for coming today, and I hope you have a good evening. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. To learn how you can attend programs at RAND, visit us online at www.rand.org events.